Welcome to St. Pat's Chat, a brand new podcast from the seminarians at St. Patrick's Seminary in the Archdiocese of San Francisco. Some of the best and most honest discussions we've had about God and His Church were not in debates with rivals, but rather in chats with our friends. We hope that this podcast will be a chance for you to listen in on some of our conversations about God, His Church, and life as a seminarian. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to St. Pat's Chat. Let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, thank you so much for this day and for all that you have given us. Please bless and guide our conversation now, and whatever you want us to say, Lord, to enlighten our hearts and our minds, as well as those of our listeners, we ask for your wisdom and guidance to do so. We pray in a special way for the intercession of our Blessed Mother, as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, God, pray pray for for us sinners, sinners, now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. St. Blaise, pray pray for for us. Our Lady Sweet of Wisdom, pray pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray Pray for for us. us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So again, welcome back to St. Pat's Chat. I am your host for this episode, Patrick German. I am a seminarian from the Diocese of Stockton. I am in my second year of philosophy. Today, I am joined by not one, but two philosophy professors, uh, both of which I have had and have, and many other guys have had at St. Patrick's here, which is what we do first. We study philosophy, and then we study theology as a part of our seminary formation. We'll talk about that today, but first, let's introduce them. Um, so I'm uh, Francis Feingold. I teach philosophy at St. Patrick's, like Patrick just said. Uh, I've been here for about four years. Um, came here from uh, basically after finishing, uh, directly after finishing my graduate work at Catholic University. I had done a little bit of time at Ave Maria University teaching there while finishing my doctorate, and then came here. And I've been uh, it's been a real delight to uh, teach teach what I love to seminarians and. Uh, help the church move on to its, uh, help the next generation of uh, the church's priests um, uh, enter their formation. It's been a real privilege. Yeah, and my name is uh, John Macias. I am, uh, did my, I also teach in philosophy uh, in the pre-theology program. I did my doctoral work at the University of St. Thomas in Texas, uh, Houston, at the Center for Thomistic Studies, and after that, had a couple of jobs, one in Oklahoma, another one in North Dakota, in Bismarck, and then the University of Mary. And then from there came here, and I am now in my third year at the seminary. And like Francis just said, I, I definitely also see this as really a, a, a dream and a very wonderful, fulfilling opportunity to help be a part of the formation of men for the priesthood. And so it's, it's a work I, I also deeply value and, and definitely cherish. Well, thank you both for being here, as I said. Um, as we go forward, our general discussion topic today is why do seminarians study philosophy? And I bring that question to mind because it's one that I'm often asked even now as I'm fear- finishing the end of my uh, work so far. When people hear that I'm a seminarian, first they ask, what's a seminarian? And then they ask, well, what are you studying? What are you learning about? Are you learning about God? Are you learning about the church? And said, yes, but first we study philosophy to get some groundwork. And they say, well, why? Why does a seminarian study philosophy? So we've asked that multiple times as well <laughs> as uh, <laughs> philosophy students, but it does make sense. But I wanted to hear 
uh, your perspective about it to tell some of our listeners what exactly is involved in our study of philosophy. Why would we do so in studying for the priesthood? Dr. Macias, do you want to lead us off? Sure. Um, See, so yeah, as I was thinking about this, um, I was I was reminded of this. Uh, there's a uh, priest, an, uh, an Italian priest from Milan named Father Luigi Giussani. He's the head of this, or founded, he's since passed away, but founded a uh, group called the uh, Communion Liberation, uh, one of the lay movements in the church. And he's often, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's often cited as referring to the most worthless question or answer, the most worthless answer is to a question no one has asked. Mm -hmm. And so what I see philosophy, the reason why we do philosophy is to really understand the questions that we as human beings have just by the fact that we are human beings. Uh, it helps us articulate the things that we in some way implicitly already know the kind of desires that we have, what, our, what the human heart really wants. And then we start to get a sense of where that will lead us and what will, fully, what will actually fulfill that desire. And you get to the point of, you know, when, in ethics, when you're discussing the, the final complete beatitude, as Aquinas says, is in the beatific vision of God. And that's really, you know, as I see philosophy, that's the kind of the edge that you get to kind of where you are just let off and you start to learn some things about God. And then in theology, you're able to receive a fuller answer. So nature kind of prevent, uh, nature presents the desire in, in human hearts, and then faith gives the fullest answer of that. So that's usually how I think of my role in, as, as a philosopher in a seminary. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, so uh, just to build on that, um, so it seems to me that the most important reason why the church insists on these two years of study of something that's not obviously Catholic um, in studying for the Catholic priesthood um, has to do with developing, in a sense, the human side of the, the seminarian, right? So as John was just saying, right, part of what makes us be human is this capacity that we have for truth, for absolute truth in itself. And part of what we want to do for all of us to develop ourselves as human beings is to kindle a desire for that truth. So it seems as though part of a big part, maybe the most important part, um, which JP2 emphasizes in Pastoris Dabophobius, among other places, um, is that, um, yeah, this is about forming the, sem the person of the seminarian uh, directly so that they can get this habit first of wanting and seeking absolute truth about the fundamental things, about God, and about the world, and about man in particular, and also about getting the confidence that this kind of truth can be had, right? That can be had as a gift from God who is truth. Right? We live in a world where we have a lot of doubt about our, uh, our capacity as human beings to attain this sort of truth. Um, and so the church insists on this philosophy training at the beginning in order to instill in its seminarians this, this habit. Um, and so this is, it's important for all human beings. It's what sets us apart from the animals that we have this capacity uh, for truth. Um, but it's especially important for priests, arguably. Um, and again, this is JP2's point that I'm uh, paraphrasing. Um, right, since 
priests are putting their whole lives on the line for truth. And you need to have the certainty of that absolute truth about God and man in order for that sort of putting yourself out there to make sense. So I'd say arguably that's the most important thing. But it also, right, so that's about forming, forming the person of the seminarian. But also, obviously, again, as John was saying, um, philosophy doesn't stop with itself. It points beyond itself, right? And so um, right, it points to theology and the much longer training that seminarians uh, undergo uh, in, in that respect, <laughs> um, in that field. Uh, and I suppose one could ask, well, why, why bother with the philosophy part of it, right? And if it's just pointing to the theology, why not just start with the good stuff, as it were? Um, and uh, so again, part of the answer to that would be, okay, it's great to have the answers, but with no question, what good is the answer, right? As John was just saying. Um, but part of it also is that in order to make sense of our faith, you need tools, right? So just to give a few classic examples, I mean, if you want to understand the Eucharist, you really have to know what's going on with what it means to talk about the substance of bread and the substance of Christ's body and what it means to talk about qualities and how they relate to the bread and to Christ's body. Um, or for to understand the incarnation, you have to know what person means and what nature means and how these, how these are distinct. You want to understand the Trinity, you've got to, oddly enough, understand what relation means, um, etc. Right? So there are all sorts of ways in which the elucidation of our faith depends on having this prior grasp of the fundamental building blocks of reality. And in my experience, a lot of that, I think, comes from uh, not undoing necessarily, but maybe retooling a lot of the ways we think about just the nature of man and the nature of people. Even the word nature, like you mm -hmm. say, the word relation, the word person, they have a lot of connotations and a lot of baggage, especially in modern society. What it mm -hmm. even means to be a person anymore, it seems like is at the forefront of a lot of conversations. And so this, um, in many ways, this obsession of our cultures with identity is important because it helps us go back to, okay, what does it really mean to have an identity, not just in Christ, but as a person, as a created being? Um, mm -hmm. And that's something I was surprised to find was really intuitive in the midst of everything that was we were learning in philosophy and all the different things we covered. Um, it's really, it's almost um, common, it's very commonsensical when you think about it and look at it. And so it's, there's something very attractive about it. And so to be able to learn that and to be able to share that is an important thing. And I pray that I can do that someday. But at the same time, you know, it's also learning that that's a process. The philosophy isn't something that you just get, like learning how to do geometry or algebra. It's something that has a long tradition, a tempestuous tradition sometimes, but um, that's very important to cover and to keep revisiting it. Like, okay, why does this matter? Why is this important? Um, Dr. Macias, I saw you writing over there. You have some thoughts. Well, yeah, you know, as 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 uh, for, as Dr. Feingold was, you know, was speaking, some things were, you know, I was coming up with some thoughts that, and also, you know, when you just said, "What is a nature?" You know, you mentioned the idea of needing to sort of relearn things. I don't, I know we, you know, we both had experiences at non-seminaries, but even to that extent, because seminarians, you know, you guys come from the world just like all of us, and so. There is a sense in which there's a kind of therapeutic 
activity that you have to go through in order to come to understand who you are, what you're doing, to kind of be able to sort of relearn what, in a sense, how to see reality. And so I was just thinking of the fact that, you know, and I mean, an example of this, and this sort of goes to why you can't just give the answers, is, you know, it's kind of ironic that the thing that finally made a lot of at least, you know, liberal people turn on Pope Francis was the fact that he, you know, said that he didn't think that it was a, in a sense, selfishness to, you know, be perfectly capable of having children, but to have pets instead. <laughs> you know, he came out and said, you know, it's, it's, it's an act of selfishness when a married couple who are otherwise perfectly capable, you know, they can afford kids, there's nothing, there's no kind of infertility or anything like that. It's just, they just don't want kids, they'd rather have dogs or cats. Um, you know, he called that selfish. And from a perspective of faith, that's, all, that's obviously very true. But then, you know, the reaction is, well, how, how dare he say that? This seems like this is a really wrong thing to say. But if you understand the sort of, if you've gone through the long work of coming to understand what you are as a human being and really identifying what you want and what your desires are, you start to realize that no, a pet is not going to do the same thing as a child. I mean, you know, I myself don't have any children, but even I know from the colleagues and friends that I know who do have children that yes, to a certain extent, when they're younger, there is a lot of overlap between raising a child and taking care of a pet. But, uh, you know, there is the kind of work that is part of building a relationship and family is just not something that you can duplicate in an easy way. And so to understand, not could du duplicate with a, with, with a pet. So if you can understand that, then it, what the Pope said about why it is selfish is perfectly intelligible. In some sense, it's that through a, through a proper philosophy, you understand that the couple who chooses not to have a child but to have a dog when they could perfectly have a child is actually in some sense denying themselves a true fulfillment and a good that they could have. And so part of philosophy is, as you said, retraining people to realize and give some type of coherence, practically speaking and even theoretically speaking as well, to the basic ideas that they've already, they already have as human beings. And unfortunately, much like holiness, there's no shortcut to that. So you can't just sort of plop down the answers and expect someone to understand them. They have to sort of do the very hard, grueling work of just sitting with questions and sitting with problems until eventually they come to some kind of conclusion. And I'm still, and I'm sure Dr. Feingold would be the same as to say, there's still plenty of things that I'm struggling with. We're all trying to figure them all out. <laughs> <laughs> I still try to figure out. Well, I still try to figure out when I talk about formal causality. I have to always think about what am I actually talking about with formal cause. Yep. You know, I can sort Hegel. of explain it to a student. <laughs> I, started. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's sort of one of those things where you sort of repeat things over and over again. And you, as a philosopher, I myself as a teacher, have to realize what am I actually talking about here. And it can be really tricky sometimes to try and figure out a way to explain what I am what I am thinking of at the time. And so that's the kind of stuff that I was thinking about is what is a nature? What is a human being? Those are the kind of things that philosophy helps you realize because by doing so, you can then naturally see how faith and theology are the sort of culmination and fulfillment of those things. Mm -hmm. The what, Something that's struck me too in my um, 
to studying a philosophy is just the emphasis on the order of things and the order of not just of creation and of, you know, of the things that we as Catholics believe are called to in our faith, ordering our lives properly, spiritually, physically, mentally, but just of the cosmos, how there's an order to things, even things that seem like, well, where did that even come from? Like, I'm not even, I was talking at lunch today with some of the guys, like, where did hornets come from? How is that a part of God's creation? I, (laughs) I don't understand that, but there's, you know, there's, and so bridging that to like, well, how does philosophy fit in? How is that an order of anything? Why did anyone need to learn that? I remember being told often when I was in school, like one of the most useless degrees you can get is history and philosophy. And so I was a history major and then I'm here <laughs> with two go. philosophers. So we're <laughs> the Getting useless the, meeting all, of all minds, good, I guess. Stuff. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. But it's, you know, the larger question I think connected with that is just the humanities and the liberal arts, the sense of why those are important have, if they haven't been lost, the purpose for them has shifted. It's like, what is this ultimately for? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And philosophy, learning that I think, like you say, helps not just a person um, order their lives, but especially for us as men preparing for the priesthood, it's right to have things, our focus redirected and put that order in the place where it needs to be, even if we don't get it immediately to start moving down that path. Okay, this is what it's for. This is what it's moving towards. Regardless of whether we continue with our formation up to ordination or not, um, to have that background is incredibly helpful. So with that in mind, what would you say to somebody who says, well, I can go to mass and I can get by without all of that philosophy stuff. I don't have to read any theologians or have to be familiar with any philosophers. I don't have to read Hegel or I don't have to read, um, you know, Aquinas. I don't have to read the Summa every day in order to get that. What, are there any practical applications, I guess? For people at large or for still for seminarians in particular? Uh People at large, the aver- the Catholic who comes to Mass, uh, let's say they're a very good one and they come every Sunday, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they should, yep. um, if they ask, Father, why do I need to ha- understand philosophy in order mm-hmm. to grow deeper in my faith? What might you say? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so you brought up the right, uh, history and philosophy as useless degrees, right? You brought up uh, the liberal arts. So let me say something maybe about liberal arts in general before zeroing back in on philosophy and mm. Hegel. Um, <laughs> I'll try not to say too much about Hegel. Well, we don't have to if you um, don't <laughs> But, um, right, so, you know, in a sense, um, philosophy and the liberal arts in general wear that uselessness badge proudly, right? Because what does it mean to say that something is useless? Well, it can mean one of two things. Normally, we mean it to say it has no value either in itself or for getting it anywhere else. Um, but it can be the case that something is not useful in the sense of not getting you anywhere else and is nonetheless still valuable in its own right. And so even if it were the case, which everybody, uh, every professor of the humanities will vigorously deny, but even if it were the case uh, that one could not derive practical benefits like higher salaries or critical thinking capacities or what have you from studying the liberal arts, um, that would be irrelevant for their primary value in the eyes of set professors, um, which would be that when you, whether you're studying history, whether you're studying literature, whether you're studying the fine arts, what you're going for is something which is 
worth grasping in itself. So in other words, because of the kinds of things, kinds of beings that we are, right, it just fulfills our nature. It is something which we find, if, if you, I mean, you may miss it, but it's something which if you look at it, right, and it's clearest maybe with beauty, that something which is beautiful is something worth looking at in its own right. Is beauty useful? I mean, certainly like it has formative effects. I mean, you can give Mozart to your kids and maybe this will help their brains grow better or something. Um, but that's not the point of music, right? The point of music is that it is worth listening to in its own right. So likewise, studying philosophy. I mean, maybe it'll give you better critical thinking abilities and the ability to write more organized emails, I guess, and like, you know, let's get higher paying white collar jobs or whatever. There are lots of universities that, uh, whose philosophy departments sell themselves that way mm. um, or sell themselves out that way, as the case may be. Uh, mm. But, mm. Um, uh, and, that, and that is true, I think. Um, but again, it's not the point. So the, the reason why um, I would say to anyone, if you, have, if you have the time, if you have the inclination, if you, uh, yeah, if you have, if you, if, if the possibility is open to you, if you have this luxury, um, take advantage of it because just as it is a fulfilling thing to contemplate beauty, so it's a fulfilling thing to understand this world down to the bottom as far as we can. Um, so that's like, so that would be for everybody, but, um, person in the pews might be saying, well, okay, that's, that's really nice, but I, I don't know, I don't have that inclination or I, I find my connection to those ultimate truths through, you know, listen, seeing sunsets and listening to the birds or, you know, or, or uh, art or whatever. So if that's my road, why do I need to pick up my Aristotle? And there are more strictly practical things that one can say too. And the most obvious one to me is this. So for me, like as a, as a Catholic, one of the most powerful defenses of my faith that I've been able to uh, take advantage of is the fact that for it's been a number of years now that the existence of a, of a God and the existence of a spiritual soul made sense to me. Like this wasn't just something I was saying, okay, well, I guess it's got to be that way because that's what we Catholics believe. Like, no, it couldn't be any other way. This is this is the right, the reasonable, you might even say the scientific way of looking at the world. And if that's your starting point, then accepting the rest of the faith with, without, um, without doubt, without hesitancy, without fear, is easy. And so just for myself, personally, like I find the fact that I have this background in philosophy to be immensely helpful for my life of faith. Right? And by the same token, okay. You can't, uh, one should never overestimate the uh, extent to which one can bring the faith to others by argument. Mm -hmm. um, it's always a temptation for us philosophers to think that we can argue other people <laughs> into uh, all, all the truths that, that we think we see. Um, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, right, it's a really important witness to the faith, to people who don't share it, to be able to say there's more to it than just this blind leap. So both for the sake of right, just developing one's own humanity and also for the sake of preserving one's own faith and being able to defend it to others. It seems as though for all those reasons, philosophy is something to be recommended to Catholics at large, not just seminarians.
Yeah, I think my my way of thinking about that would also mirror very much what Dr. Feigl just said, because what I would see it as, one thing that I always think about and I always say to students is that the things we talk about in philosophy are things you do anyways. So one of the great things, one of the, the tragedies of at least the way philosophy is often discussed in the academic world is philosophy is often treated as something that is highly technical, very abstract, and in many ways completely unconnected from those who don't have a PhD. When, you know, if the Catholic intellectual tradition and Aristotle and Aquinas and Plato even, you know, and, and those, and if, they're, if what they say is true, then philosophy actually just begins in what some people would call the, the plain person or just the non-academic philosopher, the non-professionalized philosopher. And so the kind of questions that the professionalized philosophers ask are the very questions that they themselves have as plain persons, as just people living their lives. And so the person in the pew, whether, you know, whether people in the pew realize this, they themselves have these philosophical questions and they give answers to them simply by the choices they make every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the choice to pursue a career that you think is profitable and maybe more secure over one that you would find yourself feeling more fulfilled in is a philosophical choice. It's arguing that at least in this case, you're weighing the questions of security versus fulfillment, certainty versus uh, risk. You're weighing those and asking, in general, which of these would hold out? And then in these circumstances, which of these holds out? And those are important philosophical questions that you see people like Aristotle and Aquinas really giving answers to. So, I mean, Aristotle, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky because, you know, when he's talking about courage, He's talking about, you know, the soldier in battle is his is the, his true ideal or the highest image of what a courageous person is. But even then, when Aquinas talks about this, he says, well, you know, there can be everyday kinds of courage. So the person who makes the choice to pursue something that's a risk, so maybe to take a job that is a true, genuine good, but also a genuine risk, can be an act of courage. There's also just the sense of a kind of freedom that you will put, that you will find through studying philosophy, or at least realize or doing good philosophy, whether you study it or not. Just doing good philosophy, because by having a true, accurate philosophical habit, you are then not going to necessarily be subject to the whims of whatever cultural tides you live in. You know, we're right now in this period where. Everything, whether it's, you know, everything is, is in a way meant to manufacture some type of consent, whether that's news media, whether that's marketing, political ideologies, whatever it is, you are, they are meant to move the masses or move individuals to make certain choices and want certain things. And with a true philosophical background, you're able to see that recognize that and not then be controlled by it and to ask, well, what is it that is truly valuable? It's, is it the fact of achieving this particular job in this income or is it something more? You know, I agreed with Dr. Feingold when he was saying there is that notion of useless and probably the goal of philosophy 
is to show that the useless things are the goal of the useful things. So useful things are for the sake of useless things. Mm-hmm. So you ask them things like, well, you know, we talk about things like family and friendships and the various kinds of truly deep human experiences, love, and those sorts of things that we have. You ask them, well, what are those good for? And most people, I think, if you really ask them honestly, would be rather puzzled by that question. And then you would say, well, then your marriage is useless. Your friendship mm-hmm. is useless. Your children are useless. Mm-hmm. I know some people mm-hmm. would probably, yeah, they would, I mean, <laughs> they would in some sense think that's sort of funny, but then at a deeper level, it's even more true. So just like philosophy is useless, so are those types of uh, children and friendships and marriage. All of these are truly useless because they are what we desire. And the sad thing about contemporary education is that it, trains us to only desire things that are useful as means to something else. And usually that something else is a job that can provide a certain kind of income or a certain kind of prestige. And yet a true education, and I think this would be the goal of the liberal arts education, would make one truly free as the whole idea of the liberal arts or the truly the arts of the free person are what will make you free to actually be fulfilled and allow you to be fulfilled. You know, I, I still remember some years ago, a priest on the, the Feast of St. Francis, which is uh, uh, the priest on the Feast of St. Francis gave this homily where he described St. Francis as the most dangerous man in the world because he was the most free man in the world. <laughs> and, you know, in the course of this homily, he described St. Francis as somebody who the only thing he truly desired was Christ. And since there was nothing anybody could do to take that away from him, there was quite literally, and, you know, the actual meaning of the word literally, there was nothing anybody could do to control his desires. They couldn't threaten him with physical punishment or taking away food or wealth or pleasure or, or prestige because he didn't want those things. And so what philosophy does and a true education allows you to recognize what it is that you truly desire and what will truly fulfill you. I mean, this is the whole point of Plato's cave, that for most people, they unfortunately are sort of stuck in the cave looking at shadows. And, you know, the, the people who, you know, Plato sort of funnily, or funny enough, just sort of passes over who those people are that are, you know, holding up the little uh, figurines and, and dancing around in shadows. But, you know, you could almost say, I don't know, we probably talked about it in our ancient philosophy class where, you know, nowadays you would ask, well, what are, the, what are some contemporary examples of that? And you could think, you know, you just start naming off news outlets or corporations or politicians as the ones sort of dancing around, making you look at shadows, whereas a true education helps you, as Plato said, look at what is truly real and what is truly valuable. And so I would say that's really what philosophy does, whether you, you know, read Aristotle or read Aquinas or Plato or, or anyone, that's what a truly good philosophical education does for you, is it helps you understand what is truly valuable and desirable in life. Mm. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, and it is, going back to something, Dr. Macias, you were saying earlier, I mean, it is sort of the shame of uh, how modern philo- or how philosophy is often done these days, is that it gets so dressed up in the jargon and the scientific way of presenting, which philosophers do because they want to make themselves look like they're part of the scientific establishment, um, that one forgets that these questions that we're asking are the questions that 
we all ask. You had mentioned, uh, Patrick, earlier in this conversation that it's you're surprised in a way by how commonsensical some of these things are. And that's sort of the paradox of philosophy is that it's, on the one hand, it, these are just the basic questions like that we all are wrestling with all the time. But precisely because they're so basic, they're also super hard. <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's the better reason why all this jargon and all these distinctions get developed to try to deal with them. But it's always important to keep in mind that... Uh, yeah, that uh, all of those, uh, that apparatus is at the service of these things, which are just so fundamental to being a regular old human being. Yeah, and I thank you both those for the examples. I really appreciate those. Those have helped a lot in the class, um, in the classes that we've taken. But I want to go back, Dr. Macias, you mentioned um, the people making those philosophical choices without even realizing it. They do certain, the way they act in certain ways or when they look at risk-reward situations, it struck me when you mentioned that that there's simultaneously in the way philosophy is often thought of is at the same time as there's this, it's reducing everything to um, just, oh, these are just big heady ideas or these practically, this is what's most important, the science is what matters or it's what I can physically see, it's the data, it's the experimental things. At the same time, it strips away all of those other things like the beautiful, the good, the true. It removes those things and yet at the same time adds a bunch of new constrictions and a bunch of new chains. People might see, you know, things in our faith, the Catholic faith is just barriers or obstacles when in fact they don't see willingly or unwillingly, they submit to all kinds of obstacles in their lives, like, oh, getting that promotion at work mm -hmm. or, um, you know, doing, acting in a certain way around certain people or um, just in the life that they live. I think in particular of some of the youth that I've worked with or the teens nowadays, all of the different things they have to cut through. That's, the internet has produced terrible things like TikTok and <laughs> um, a variety of other stuff that I don't want to mention necessarily. But at the same time, it's also provided this tool that you, it's provided so many things you have to cut through a lot, but thankfully you can access a lot of that now. And so going into, you know, going back to what we were saying, is this, is philosophy make faith irrelevant? Does it make it you know, this is something extra. I don't, I just need Jesus. I just need to go to mass and just take everything on faith. We talked, we've talked quite a bit in class about how this divorce between theology and philosophy developed when that, and that's something again, which is so commonsensical. It's so basic, but that surprised me is that mm -hmm. at one time it would have been inconceivable to think that these would have been dealt with or treated separately. They were just so intertwined. The study of the faith and the study of the things of God were so intimately connected with philosophy. They've become not either on purpose or not, they have diverged and they're treated completely mm -hmm. different. People think, oh, there you have your faith and then you have logic and you have science, when really they're so inherently close together. Again, you have to cut through a lot of extra baggage that has been put onto us over the centuries, but they're just so intimately connected. You and know, yet... When, when, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, but this will be my last thing. But just to say, it's made us think that, oh, well, if I have philosophy or if I have science or the data, I don't need faith. That's kind of a superfluous thing. And to get back to that, how 
I guess, just a general thought to ponder. We don't have to talk about it, but how would we get back to that? There's just a lot of things to cut through and a lot of retraining that needs to be done um, to to do so. But Dr. Macias, you were, you were saying... Well, no, I mean, you know, when you're talking about does philosophy make faith superfluous or if you have faith, do you really need philosophy? You know, there's this... Um, I, rem- I, was, I was reminded of the old uh, sort of criticism that... Uh, some will sort of throw at Catholics that, well, the role of like a lay person is just, as they say, to uh, pay, pray, and obey. You know, your job <laughs> is to fill the coffers yeah, uh, every week, pray your rosary, and then do whatever the priest tells you. Mm-hmm. And the way that, I, and again, what I think that does is it, it shows a kind of separation between human reason and faith, because it seems to presuppose that a classic understanding a true, the Catholic intellectual tradition requires that you stop questioning, which is actually the the complete opposite. And I mean, we haven't, we will actually see in the coming weeks in in epistemology class Mm. that um, for Aquinas, the human intellect can't be stopped or can't be fully satisfied until it sees the truth. But the problem, or at least the the, the issue or the tension with faith is that you don't see the truth. You accept something, not without any evidence whatsoever. So it's not as though I, I, you accept Christianity simply because, you know, without any evidence. You know, this is the idea of the, the witness of the martyrs and the witness of your own parents, your own family members, people who seem to live a certain way that is just attractive and exceptional, and you ask, well, what is it that you have that, I, that makes you this way? And so you continue pursuing it. But even if you say, okay, I accept on faith that God is triune, or I accept on faith that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God, your intellect doesn't stop, mm-hmm. because it can't stop until it sees the truth. And so a, a genuine Catholic understanding of that shows you that even when you accept something as true on faith, your intellect still continues and still questions and still tries to understand and really won't ever fully rest until it reaches ultimately the beatific vision. Because then at that point, and this actually, you know, Aquinas's argument is that at that point, you actually cease to have faith because you now see the truth rather than taking something on faith. I mean, that's why he thinks, and, you know, Dr. Feinberg will correct me if I'm wrong, that's why he says, you know, of those three theological virtues, only charity in itself still Mm -hmm. exists in the next life. So faith and hope cease to be in themselves what they were, since they all all, uh, presuppose a distance from. So faith, you know, presupposes a lack of sight, Hope presupposes a distance from a sort of a not yet, but only in in the next life only will charity, faith or you know charity, caritas, love will fully still exist in its in its own uh, in its own state, whereas the others will, in a certain sense, exist kind of taken up into charity, and so. You know, that's why the, the, what a true philosophical understanding or a true philosophical background helps you give is a kind of courage to keep asking questions. Mm. Because if I really do think that this Catholic faith is true, if I accept this as truth, then I have to also understand that nothing I can 
I can find by reason, by in philosophy, will ever contradict it. And so I have a true freedom that I can pursue the truth without fear. And, you know, I always have to, I constantly have to remind myself if I suddenly feel I see somebody say something on TV or, or I see something online, I have to, and I have this gut reaction against it. I have to fight myself and remember that unless there's something, unless I really think that the Catholic faith is not true. If I, unless I'm willing to reject the Catholic faith, then I have to realize that either this person is saying something that's true, in which case I want it, mm. or, what they're, or they're saying something that is false, and in which case reason will allow me to see what that is. Mm. So in some sense, a true philosophy and a true theology really give you a great sense of freedom. And so you're perfectly willing, as Aquinas himself did, to just sort of be like, all comers, I want whatever you're saying. If it's true, I want it. And so, you know, Aquinas himself, although is, you know, if you've ever, I don't know, if, Dr. Fine, have you ever read his, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's apocryphal, but it's like a letter to brother, I think it was brother John. Um, I think so. It's this great thing, which it may or may not mm-hmm. actually be from him, but it's sort of like a brother has written to, you know, one of his Dominican brothers has written to, to brother Thomas and asked him sort of, okay, how do I be like you? And one of the things he says is, don't consider the source of truth, but whatever it is, Mm -hmm. whatever is true, I mean, even St. Paul said, whatever is true, accept it. And you can see that from the way he lived. I mean, he took from Christians, he took from uh, Arabs, he drew from pagans and Greeks, Mm. uh, Romans. I mean, he, uh, anybody that he thought had something true to say, he wanted it. And so if I follow that example, it allows me to actually take a greater joy in movies, TV shows, music, uh, sports, you know, all of these things, because to me, I look at it and I say, if this reveals something true to me, then I should be absolutely grateful. Even if it's somebody who maybe disagrees with me and, you know, harshly disagrees with me about something else, I have to be very grateful when they do that. Mm. Um, So you're sometimes you'd actually be grateful with your heart, more grateful to your harshest critics than some of your friends, because your critics will have no compunction pointing out all of your flaws. Mm. Whereas sometimes your friends are wanting to sort of soften things and maybe say things a little more delicately. Sometimes you need a person just to be ruthlessly blunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's very well said. Um, yeah, the, um, the point that you were making at the beginning, Dr. Macias, about uh, faith, uh, how faith doesn't rest content with just having faith that it points, I mean, in a sense, okay, uh, faith points beyond itself, not to philosophy, but to the beatific vision, like you were saying. But while we're short of that, um, the way that uh, one can keep on going with one's faith is precisely by drawing on what our experience of the world, as our reason grasps it, has to offer. Mm. Um, And so the way I think about it for myself and the way I try to encourage my students to think about it also, especially in a seminary context, is to say, well, right, so in faith, why why do we love our faith? We love what we know by faith because this tells us about our beloved. This tells us about the God whom we love. But we want to understand what we say these things about this person whom we love, but we don't know what they mean. Mm. And we want, we should want, if we really have charity and we really have faith, we should want to know what they mean. And how do you do that? You do that by drawing on everything that our natural 
natural gifts, natural powers, and natural experience has to offer. Yeah, and especially coming off of philosophical anthropology mm-hmm. last semester, that all of those powers of the soul work together. And it's not that, oh, well, my reason says this and my faith says this. Like, I, what, which, which do I believe? I feel like that's mm-hmm. something a lot of uh, questions get phrased in that way as if you're being pitted against parts of yourself right. against each other, when really it's all about, yeah, we talk about integration a lot here mm-hmm. at seminary, if just in the sense being a fully well-rounded person uh, in all of the areas, spiritual, intellectual, and pastoral, all the others. But that's to say the larger point is applicable that, yeah, these things, why wouldn't we utilize everything at our disposal? Wisdom is wisdom mm-hmm. wherever it comes from, and we test what is good, and we keep what is good. And... Yeah, why wouldn't we want to learn that? But <laughs> um, yeah, this is all. Oh, this is all really, really good stuff. I was really curious. It's a great topic to ask. Yeah, I was Not really curious. At all, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious. I wanted to hear from uh, both of you about how has this influenced your own life as a Catholic? Not just learning about philosophy, but teaching it also. How has that um, helped you? Has there been anything about this? in your vocations um, as teachers of philosophy and then in your other parts of your life as well, how has that influenced you? Maybe in ways that have surprised you, good surprises, bad surprises. Um, what are some things that have come from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. So, I mean, again, just to repeat myself, like the, the most uh, direct way in which uh, philosophy has um, influenced my life as a Catholic, is in making the faith reasonable. So in other words, letting me have that serenity that Dr. Macias was talking about so uh, so eloquently a little bit before. I don't feel like I need to worry about, okay, um, my faith is telling me this, but oh gosh, it seems like everybody's smart, everybody <laughs> who knows what they're talking about, who doesn't have faith is saying this other thing, and maybe I should go listen to them instead, right? So mm. having the philosophical background Right, so that's just like the education that I've received. Right, just helps me like not get worried about that sort of thing. To know that no, there's really smart people on the other side too, um, and I can see how the what they have to say fits together with with the faith. So just strengthening my faith in that respect. As far as teaching philosophy goes, well, I mean the first thing to be said is that I mean you don't ever actually understand something until you try to teach it. Um, so, <laughs> Amen. So, and um, even, then it's a, mm, even then it's a struggle. Exactly. And until you've taught something maybe six or seven times, <laughs> um, <laughs> using up a whole bunch of guinea pigs along the way. But uh, Yes, um, we're thankful for those guinea pigs. Uh, yes, yes uh, I'm thankful for you, Pet. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in a sense, wait, the, the teaching it, amplifies it for myself. So things which I maybe only would have gotten in germ from my own teachers, right, come back to like help benefit me in, in spades when I'm doing my best to try to pass it on to somebody else. Um, I mean, other than that, I don't know if this is about like how it helps my life as a Catholic. I mean, there, there is just a joy that one sees, which is maybe just goes beyond the, uh, or is broader than um, strengthening one's faith in particular, but um, there's a joy that one sees in seeing somebody whom one has taught then 
go on to like bring this to somebody else and like help them like develop this coherent picture of the world. I mean that that if you, if one can get there, it's um, one's lucky if one's able to observe it. But um, it's one of the most rewarding experiences you can have. Um, yeah, and also, uh, uh, I don't know that this is really something that uh, having taken graduate courses in philosophy is the best way to approach but you, when you have kids mm. they ask questions yes. and like one will be saying doing night prayers with the kids and they will uh stop in the middle and say okay that word god came uh, say what is god exactly mm. i mean they, they wouldn't say it in quite those words but like I've, <laughs> right. there's definitely been cases of night prayers where i had to first explain what who god is and what love is and mm. and so just like in a way, that's it's more as though that works in reverse. Like experiences mm. of that sort will make me look back on all the stuff that I got out of my education and say, okay, this is actually real, and I yeah. need to be able to make it real for um, for my own kid to pass it on in that respect. Mm. Yeah, but wow, I've had kind of a you know my life in philosophy is I mean it's both in the classroom but also just because of what I was doing. You know, I don't you know some people. I don't know that I ever knew or knew certainly from the beginning that I really wanted to do uh, philosophy and be a philosophy teacher. Uh, I actually started my undergraduate career as an athletic training major. I was a... Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, I was a... Uh, cool. I went to the... I mean, I'm originally from Kansas and uh, in high school at, in uh, Wichita, where I'm from, there was a, the high school I went to, one of the two Catholic colleges. Uh, Cape and Mount Carmel was the the we were the East Siders and Bishop Carroll was the the West Siders the two big rivals and at Cape and there was a sports medicine program and I really enjoyed it it was a lot of fun I got to I mean I just love sports and so mm. I got to hang out at football games and do stuff with athletes and <laughs> do stuff with you know we would have other sorts of football soccer volleyball basketball those were always a lot of fun for me and then got into college and was just I mean I I got wanted to do the major, but man, I was just bored in some of those classes, like doing some of the biology classes. I mean, looking back, I really wish I would have paid more attention and done better in it, but I just was so bored in thinking about, okay, I memorize this system and it does this, and then it innervates here and the muscle attaches here. And it was just, I hated studying for those classes, but then it was, you know, decided, all right, maybe I want to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it was spring break. I think I had done like a, one of those career advice things. And so like pre-law was on there, political science and philosophy was on there. So I thought, well, okay. And it was spring break. I decided I wasn't going to do athletic training anymore. And so I was walking around Barnes and Noble back in Wichita where I'm going from school. I was at the University of Kansas studying athletic training and was walking through a Barnes and Noble in their philosophy section and just happened to pull off this book, Aristotle for Everybody. I still have it in my office mm. by Mortimer Adler, started reading it. And I was just kind of the experience that you were talking about, Patrick, where, you know, more, you know, Adler is trying to simplify these Aristotelian topics, but then just thinking how much they corresponded to what I just already knew and talking about really important things. And so eventually that just, experience really changed me and 
I was more interested in it. And then because of that, I ended up transferring. I went to Benedictine College for my undergraduate. And then from there, you know, went to St. Thomas in Texas. And I remember when I was the first class I ever taught as an adjunct while I was doing my degree, uh, doing my doctoral degree, I was in this class and we had just started talking about abortion. Mm. And we had finished the class, it was done. This big guy came up to me and he said, You know, beforehand, before class, we were talking about this, and I used to just think to myself, you know, this is, you know, if, if a woman needs a, is, is pregnant, she doesn't want to be, she just, you know, pays her money, goes to the doctor and takes it care of. But now, like, I mean, that's a baby. You can't really do that. And I just remember mm, thinking to myself, nice. did I just potentially save somebody's life in the future? Wow. Or, you know, just, and I was just like, I mean, the immensity of that, having that kind of an impact on something and on someone was just so amazing that I was like, I think at that point I was just hooked um, being a teacher in philosophy and talking these sorts of things. And even now, you know, the thing that I just love so much about teaching at a seminary is thinking, you know, I've had these thoughts every once in a while where I go, you know, we just had a conversation in class about whatever. And it's very possible that at some point down the road, whether this man, whether one of these students becomes a priest or is just a husband and father, just a husband and father, <laughs> uh, a priest or a father, whoever he is, he might have a conversation with somebody that really changes a person's life, maybe even in the long scheme saves their soul. And I actually am at a point where if I hadn't had that conversation he wouldn't have been nudged enough in one direction so that later as he goes through his formation, he keeps getting nudged one way or the other. But if, I, if we hadn't talked about what we had talked about that day, it's possible that he wouldn't have had what he needed to know to say the right thing in that moment. And just the thought about that being something I could do on a daily basis, I mean, it's both incredibly humbling, but it's also incredibly exciting and rewarding. And it's one of the things where, you know, I've told the people teaching in a seminary is pretty much my dream job. And mm, so I just, wow. you know, love doing it. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. I can't believe so much time has gone by already. I think that is a good place to end it. Um, if you have any final thoughts, maybe like you mentioned that book, Dr. Macias, Aristotle made, e I can't even remember it the was, title uh, of it right now. Mortimer Adler's Aristotle for Everybody. Okay. Um, some of the stuff I was also mentioning earlier is from some people like, you know, Joseph Pieper. Mm -hmm. uh, he writes a lot of good stuff on the virtues. And one of my teachers in undergrad described him as the, the man who has the brilliance of having never written a long book. <laughs> so everything that he writes is very short and digestible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's short, but it's also very thick and, and worthy of a lot of meditation. So, yeah, that's one of those people that I always think of as a, a good source to go to. Yeah, Pieper is fantastic. I'm trying to think of other people. In that genre, I mean, the stuff that Father Shaw writes mm. also has a little bit of that. Okay. Right? It's, it's for the layman. It's not uh, for the uh, somebody who's already like picked up a philosophy course, but it has all of that, all of that wisdom made accessible without mm. watering it down. Someone like Peter Kraft, also, he's yes. very well known as a, a popular writer. Mm -hmm. Somebody who who does get into a lot of. Uh, the issues. Actually, we read one of his works in, in Philosophical Ethics on Moral Relativism, mm -hmm. his, mm -hmm. uh, his text there, which is a transcript. And so yeah, he's another one of these people that is a, a good person to go to who will give you, as, as Dr. Feingold said, a layperson's view of these kinds of philosophical topics.
Mm. Uh, they both have that sort of Chestertonian twist to them also, which is fun. <laughs> but. Yes. Yes. Both both of which I like I say, I've reading those reading Peeper and then reading Kraft Kraft especially, he mm-hmm. is very very in a similar way to um Lewis, he they both have a very they both have a gift for analogies and mm-hmm. making comparisons to things and that helps quite a bit when talking about these heady things. Um, relating those. And then as you go on, you can go back and revisit those. Like, okay, yeah, this is making more sense as it goes on. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredible. Pleasure. I hope we can yeah. have thank you me. back sometime in the midst of your busy uh. schedules. <laughs> Thankfully, we're recording at the beginning of the semester before everything uh, begins to, the roller coaster begins to ascend a little bit more. Yep. Um, but let's end with a prayer. That's good. I'm trusting this all to. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, beginning, is now, and and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and Spirit. You have been listening to St. Pat's Chat. Thank you for joining us today. Our podcast is produced and recorded by seminarians here at St. Patrick's Seminary and University in Menlo Park, California. You and your friends can check out our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever podcasts can be found. If you want to know more about St. Patrick's Seminary or St. Pat's Chat, please check out our website, stpsu.edu. Until next time, remember that some of the most honest discussions about God and His Church are not found in debates with rivals, but rather in chats with friends.